Good to see everyone here, and uh, it was a uh, truly blessed uh, Easter celebration last Sunday, uh, culminating with uh, the baptism of Ginny Lee and Nathan Young, and uh, I also want to, I don't know if they're here or not today, but congratulate the the Mooies on uh, Daniel's 100 days, and uh, so that's a a wonderful family thing to, to celebrate so we rejoice with them. We're going to continue uh, now our look uh, through the prophet Zechariah, and we'll, uh, we're going to finish the, the rest of chapter 9. We began it the week before Easter, and uh, we'll finish that uh, this morning. So please join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's help, and not only in the proclamation of his word, but in the understanding and application of it for us all. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, remember again uh, Mark and Hannah in, in Charlotte, and we do pray your continued blessing and uh, guidance to be with them. We rejoice with the Mui's in celebrating Daniel's 100 days, and we pray that uh, you would continue to bless uh, that little boy with good health, and, and Mike and Jane uh, and uh, Liam and Eli as well, with your continued presence, Father, as they serve you and as, they, uh, as parents raise their children in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also thank you, Father, for celebrating the baptism of, of Ginny and Nathan, and as they have expressed publicly uh, the difference uh, and the change in their life brought about by the gospel, your Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ, that their faith, Father, would continue to grow and deepen, and that we, as, uh, as your church, would do all that we can to encourage them in that faith, Pray that you would continue also to bless their parents and helping them, Lord, uh, by modeling the gospel and uh, answering any questions uh, that they would have regard, uh, regarding our faith. We also thank you, Father, for your word, which is living and active. We live now uh, in the light of the resurrection, and uh, within the church year, we know that there is this wonderful 50-day celebration leading to the the celebration of Pentecost and the descent of your Holy Spirit in which you empower your church uh, to be witnesses. And so we thank you for the privilege of being your witnesses. We thank you for the responsibility. We thank you for the the ability uh, to bear witness to our glorious Lord and Savior who is risen. We thank you as well, Lord God, that all the scriptures point to Jesus, that all the scriptures remind us of your glorious and wonderful plan of salvation, not only for a rebellious humanity, but for a creation that our rebellion has affected, that your gospel is a whole gospel, and that we look forward not only to the renewal of this world that uh, will be uh, so shaped and transformed by the coming of Christ, but then we ourselves, Lord God, to become like him, at his return. Until then, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to remember that uh, no matter how dark or deep the darkness, uh, the light still shines, and the darkness will never comprehend nor overpower it, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ stands forever and eternally as Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, and you, our Heavenly Father, reign supreme over all that you have made and that your Holy Spirit continues to work in and through men and women, salt and light, whom you have redeemed, whom you have restored, whom you have forgiven. Uh, Father, continue to empower us, we ask. Now open our hearts to receive your word, to hear it, 
to understand it, and then to apply it. And as we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his, his sake, amen. So reading again uh, in Zechariah 9, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, uh, the, uh, the prophet says, The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and shall be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his bounty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. It's a marvelous picture of restoration and reconciliation that we see here at the end of Zechariah and Zechariah 9. And in just thinking through uh, the, the progress of the book, I'm reminded of, um, of something that we use every day, or at least if you travel or drive by car, if you use an app, if you use Google Maps, uh, you know that one of the features of Google Maps, certainly one of the features that I appreciate, is that it gives you two different views of where you want to go. Uh, it gives you the street level view, it shows you a photo of the place that you're going, the surrounding neighborhood, so you know, you know where you're going. 
And then it gives you this satellite view, which enables you to see the, the local roads and other landmarks like gas stations, restaurants, coffee shops, and things of that nature. So if there are a, a Google map apps for the prophet Zechariah in his book, we would likely see it like this. The first eight chapters of Zechariah, Zechariah 1 through 8, give us the view from street level. The prophet is speaking to his people. They have returned to the land, and he has these visions in which he proclaims, so the Lord through him proclaims how he will now uh, treat his people that they're back in the, the promised land. And then the, the remaining chapters, 9 through 14, give us the satellite view. Now God pulls away, and he is through the prophet saying how he is going to use Israel as well as the nations of the world to fulfill his plan for the world. Uh, not only the, the people and nation of Israel, but the entirety of his creation. So we pull away, starting in uh, chapter 9, running through chapter 14, uh, in which we get this bird's eye view, this satellite view of what God is doing. So if you were to break it down then, you know, take 9 to 14 and, and segment it even further, so chapters 9 through 11, we, we see now that God is enacting his plan to plunder the nations that plundered his people. That he is going to make sure that these nations no longer have the power to dominate or oppress Israel. And that by judging the nations, God is going to gain justice for himself. He's going to vindicate his people, that he will fight for Israel by defeating their enemies and he will use Israel uh, to take captive the nations that took them captive. There is a missional aspect to verses nine, uh, chapters 9 through 11 in Zechariah, that God defeats uh, Israel's enemies, defeats the church's enemies, not so much in this world, in this life, by defeating them militarily or oppressing them, as Israel has been oppressed, but God defeats his enemies through the proclamation of the gospel that he welcomes his enemies into his kingdom through preaching to them peace. That's why the king who comes, uh, prophesied in Zechariah 9, comes humble and mounted on a donkey, that he has no weapons of warfare other than the words which he speaks. And so the, the way that we defeat our enemies is by speaking peace to them, peace that comes from God through Christ, peace that comes through hearing the gospel. And chapters 9 through 11 display this in military terms for sure, but as it works out, as we see in the New Testament and beyond, it's through the proclamation of the gospel that we defeat our enemies. When you think about our own salvation, the way that Paul describes us in Romans, that we were at one time enemies of God, and how did God win us into his kingdom? Not by crushing us physically, not by oppressing us, but by liberating us from our sin, by liberating us from our bondage to our own uh, self-identity, if you will, our own idolatry. He spoke peace to us. Paul talks about this in Ephesians uh, 2, where Christ comes and he speaks peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near, all for the sake of bringing enemies, once former enemies, into his kingdom. So that's, that's 9 through 11. And then in uh, 12 to 14 of Zechariah, once God has dealt with the nations, he now turns his attention to Israel. In, in the rest of the book, chapters 12 to 14, God turns his attention to Israel and he promises to sift his people like 
wheat from chaff. He'll separate sheep from goat, holy from unholy. This is what's predicted in the vision of the flying scroll that we saw in Zechariah 5, that God is going to be about the business of separating faithful covenant keepers from unfaithful covenant breakers. And that's uh, how the, the rest of the book breaks down. So we get into the rest of Zechariah 9 then, just doing a quick review of, of how we got here. Uh, remember, the first eight verses of Zechariah 9 describe the fulfillment of the vision of the chariots, uh, the four chariots in Zechariah 6. That's starting with Damascus in the north, right, moving southward. Uh, these chariots of God's wrath, they begin to judge the nations. And it's an interesting thing here that God uses the nations of the world not only to judge his people, but then will use the nations of the world even to carry out his own, his own plan and purposes. And so these nations fulfill God's plan in terms of disciplining Israel and punishing them and, and setting up the return of his people. And we see then God's promise fulfilled that he will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. He will be the glory uh, in their midst. And we did a, a recap of this, and I'll just do it again just to kind of bring us up to speed because it's been a couple of weeks. So remember that the Lord keeps a watchful eye over all humanity to protect his people so that there's never a moment when we are outside of his keeping. Even when Israel was in captivity, God's promise to them was that he had plans for their future to give them a hope as well. Uh, and then the vengeance of God exposes the folly of trusting in worldly wisdom and wealth and power that the nations and Tyre and Sidon who you know, built up gold and silver like dust and mud in the streets, that amounts to nothing compared to the, the, the justice and judgment of God. Uh, and then that the power of God simply and absolutely discombobulates his enemies. It creates a great sense of fear and anguish. We certainly see this when Israel goes through and conquers the promised land. Uh, the nations that they were conquered, so, you know, our knees turn like water, our hearts melted within us. And so when God acts on behalf of his people, it, it, it really just makes them fall apart. Uh, and then lastly, the grace of God saves people by giving them a new life. And you see this when, um, in, chapter, in verse 7 especially, when God talks about taking the abomination of blood from between their teeth, he, he basically rescues these idolatrous nations, these idolatrous people, and he transforms them like a, to be like a clan of Judah, uh, to be uh, basically enfolded into his people. And there's a picture of the gospel. There's a picture of, of mission, if you will, in this, a proclamation that God takes enemies of his people, even his own enemies, strips them of their idolatry, their worship of self, their worship of wealth, their worship of power, their worship of false gods, and he now brings us into relationship with himself. You think about our own course of running through salvation, this is the way God works with us. He first takes us down, he removes those things that we trust, uh, have trusted in other than him, and he brings us into relationship with himself. And so, you get this sense in Zechariah, that's why it's also called many times the fifth gospel, that what Zechariah is about is God always seeking relationship with people that he's called after himself. That when, even when God judges and brings to justice rebellious people, 
It's all for the purpose of wanting to bring them into relationship with himself. To sort of strip us of the things that we would depend upon outside of a relationship with him. And so the, the challenge of the prophets, not Zechariah alone, but even Haggai and others, the challenge of the prophets is always for us to take a very hard and serious look about the things that are in our heart with regard to our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And so when God does this to the nations, it's also a warning to his people. And so after he has judged the nations in 1 to 8, we get into 9 to 13 of chapter 9, and that's when God installs his king, who comes humble and mounted on a donkey. And we know from the Gospels that this is the only person who meets the criteria here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one uh, that is spoken of in Psalm 2. Uh, also the one spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1. So when you break it down, when God now has installed his king uh, in, uh, in Zechariah, he now begins to lay out his plan for how that king will be used by God to execute his justice and to bring about peace uh, for the nation. So you want to move into, a, let's say, the, what's the big idea for our message this morning, it's simply this. And it's a, it's a message that really describes the entirety of the Bible. The Lord saves his people because they cannot save themselves. You could even, I could even say it more strongly, that the Lord will save his people because we will not save ourselves. If left to our own devices, we will merrily and most happily go our own way. Uh, and, and Zechariah 9, verses 11 to 17, is all about... God doing for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. Think about how Israel is returned to the promised land. It didn't happen because they willed it to be. It happened because God, 70 years prior to that, had, had told them this is what he would do. In fact, in fact, you go back to God's promise to Abraham and you get you know, God telling Abraham, your people will be slaves in Egypt. So there's this, this outworking of God's plan in terms of how he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The Lord helps his people do what they cannot do for themselves. He reunites his people to defeat a, a common enemy. He will fight against the enemies of his people. And he will bless them with the fruits of his goodness and grace. And so that's where we're going. Right? The Lord does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. He will reunite his people to defeat a common enemy. He will fight against the enemies of his people, and he will bless his people with goodness and grace. So just leave that up there, uh, Ling, and uh, when we get to the other slide, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. So that's this way, you know, where, where we're going. So let's look at the first one. You know, God will reunite his people to defeat a common enemy. In the verses 11 to 13, after basically telling how the, the king will speak peace, he says in verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that you, I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Uh, every year, uh, I think they still do it, uh, the Public Affairs Office of Beloit College 
produces what's called a mindset list for the incoming freshman class. And then they give this list to all of the professors to help them understand the mindset of the incoming class of freshmen, what they know and what they don't know. So if you could put that list up there, uh, Ling. So in 2018, for the incoming class of 2018 who are graduating uh, next month, this was the mindset list for the graduating class of 2022. This is, these are just some of the things. So they are the first class that is born in the new millennium, uh, and they, they have blessedly escaped the label millennium, uh, but are really not happy with being called iGen or Gen Z or anything. There's not really one particular label that they prefer or choose. Uh, outer space has never been uninhabited. And they have always been able to look up things on Wikipedia. I like this one. People talking loudly with themselves in public are no longer thought to be talking to imaginary friends. Do you remember when people had the Bluetooth? The first thing, they walked through an airport terminal and they were talking loudly. You didn't know who they were talking to. Uh, and then on a, on a more serious note, they have grown up with stories about where their grandparents were on November 22nd, 1963. That's the day that John F. Kennedy, the president of the United States, was assassinated in Dallas, or where their parents were on 9-11-2001. If we were to compile a, a mindset list for Zechariah's generation, it might look something like this. They have always lived in captivity to a foreign nation. Israel and Judah have always been two nations defeated by foreign powers. They have neither seen nor have they worshipped at Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. As far as they know, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not really all that different than the gods of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Persians. And for as long as they live, God has not spoken to them through a prophet. I don't know what your mindset would be, but if you put yourself in the position of a, of a returning exile in Zechariah's day, try to imagine how strange his words would sound. I, I would think they would sound as strange as preaching the gospel to a group of students, perhaps at Beloit College or some other large secular university. Talking about a man who comes from heaven veiled in flesh. Talking about a God who dies in order to redeem a sinful humanity. That sounds strange. That sounds odd. How much more strange and odd would it be for suddenly the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who are contemporaries with these exiles, who suddenly stand up inspired, burdened by the Lord to speak a word, a word with a very, very simple, straightforward message. God has remembered his covenant. God has remembered his people. God has remembered his promise to be faithful. He has not forgotten. He has not forsaken. He has not left them. But in returning them to their homeland, he has returned to them. In fact, he never abandoned them and was with them even in their captivity to make sure that they would return. So when we look at this from just our own personal perspective, we find ourselves at times in, in difficult situations and struggles, whether it's financial or relational or economic or even at work. And there's this promise that God has made and will keep, which is why we look forward to 
uh, in the celebrating Pentecost with the presence and the scent of the Spirit, that it is through the Spirit now that we sense God's presence. It's why it's important for us to gather together as His body each and every Lord's Day to remember and to celebrate that there is, in a sense, a living God who speaks and in one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. So Zechariah stands up and, and in a very pastoral way reminds his own generation, his own people, God is with us. He has not forgotten us. And it works itself out that he has returned this generation that was born in captivity to their homeland. So they may have been born in captivity, but take heart, says Zechariah. Your children will be born in a promised land. So you parents who did not maybe grow up in a Christian home or came to know Christ later on in your teen years, in your 20s, before you had children, you were born in captivity to your sin. Your children have been born into a home in which mother and father know the Lord Jesus Christ which in some ways is a mini-promised land, born into a covenant people because of your covenant with God that He made with you. So just take heart and take hope in that. That As God remembered you when you were His enemy and brought you into His kingdom, has blessed you with children in order to raise them up in the knowledge of Christ, you have the, the, the privilege of telling them about the gracious remembrance of God and how He works out His grace in and through our lives. And God remembers this generation of Zechariah's lifetime in the same way that He has remembered their ancestors in delivering them from Egypt. That just as He delivered their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and so on and so forth out of slavery in Egypt, so he has taken them out of captivity and put them back into their promised land. These prisoners of hope, God has restored. What were they hoping for? It, it took Zechariah to tell them, this is what you were hoping for. You were hoping to be returned back to the land of your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, and so on. We are prisoners of hope as well. Our hope is set on the return of one who has redeemed us and who enables us to live with hope in the midst of a strong and ever-present darkness. And so God promises then to bless his people double, to return to them double, first by returning them to Jerusalem so that their children are born in Israel, and then second, by reuniting the once divided nations of Judah and Israel, here given the nickname Ephraim. Remember how the, the kingdom divided after um, Solomon died and Rehoboam made this tragic mistake. And so God brings them forward, brings them together for the purpose of accomplishing his mission. That they were once divided, but they have been brought near. And it's, it's again a picture of reconciliation that the gospel will bring forth to full fruition in the New Testament and even the fuller fruition at the end of time, that marvelous scene of worship in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, every people, tribe, and tongue, nation, and language worshiping at the throne of the Lamb. We sang about it this morning as well, just in terms of seeing God bringing all of this to a conclusion that ends in a glorious worship service that goes on forever. 
And all of this, if you go back to verse 11, is because of the blood of his covenant with us. Can't move forward without landing or spending some time on that phrase. Because years beyond Zechariah's lifetime, Jesus Christ says this to his apostles on his last night on this earth. Remember in Matthew 26, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. He takes the cup, and when he gives thanks, he gives it to his apostles, and he says to them, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for all of you. For this is um, my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then again in, in Mark 14, 24, Jesus, same meal, same company, says this cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So here you have, in the Old Testament, Zechariah looking forward to that moment when Jesus is going to ratify this new covenant through his blood. That God will save his people because we cannot save ourselves. So when you think about the gospel, what's at the heart of the gospel? We sang about it. Restoration, reconciliation, reunion, forgiveness. How does God bring two warring nations together? How does he bring people from different backgrounds together? Not by asking them to hold hands and sing wonderful songs, but he cements our fellowship with blood. Blood that is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Because the one thing we share in common as human beings, we may be born here in the United States, we may be born in a foreign country, we may speak different language, have grown up in a different culture, but the one thing that unites every single man, woman, and child in the face of this earth is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all who, tr who truly trust in the blood of Christ's covenant are forgiven, are reconciled, are restored, are reunited with the God who makes us in his image and his likeness. So in addition then to uh, reconciling, restoring, and reuniting a divided nation, you can, you can also say that God does the same thing for a divided world. And on an even more personal level, that, let's say that's the satellite view, that God restores, reconciles, reunites a divided world. But you bring it down to street level, and what does God also do? He restores, he reconciles, and he reunites broken people. People that have been broken by sin, perhaps have been broken by others, have been broken by life, people who are prisoners of a hope they don't even know they have but desperately want. And God restores, he heals, he repairs, he makes whole through the, the blood of his precious covenant. It's why he gave his only begotten son. Right? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are those sinners that he came to save. Our greatest enemies are not <laughs> our, our greatest enemies are not the progressive left. They are not QAnon. Right? Not the man in the White House or the State House. Right? Not the guy who owns Twitter or anybody. Our greatest enemies are sin and death. 
And Christ defeated them both at the cross and the empty tomb. His crucifixion and his resurrection make it possible for us to be restored, reconciled, and reunited, first with the God who made us in his image, and then with one another. All those other things simply distract us from the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel message. It's not to say that we ought not be involved in improving and in involving ourselves in those kinds of things, but to do that with the mindset that the ultimate thing that we are after in, in discussing those matters is reconciling people with God through the gospel. That's our mission. It's really to spread the good news that God saves his people because we cannot save ourselves. And so he reunites us to defeat a common enemy, which is sin and death. How? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through living lives that demonstrate his truth, grace, and compassion, as well as his justice. And then secondly, God will fight against the enemies of his people. Verses 14 and 15, the prophet continues, The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altars. This picture of battle that takes place when God suddenly appears. Um, remember, he's that wall of fire that protects his people. He is the glory uh, in their midst. But he doesn't just stay in that city. Right? The, the, the same king who marches into Jerusalem is now the same king who leads his people out uh, into battle, who suddenly appears with, with lightning uh, in his fists. As uh, if you remember the Rich Mullins songs, right? He, he, he wasn't kidding when he was, he shows up and he has lightning in his fists. We worship, we follow, we serve. We proclaim a God who fights for his people. But not in the way that we would think. Zechariah talks here of a, a military champion. And this, and if you will, if, if, you, if you look at, let's say, if this is the New Testament, and this is Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy, in a sense, skips over, if you will, the body of the New Testament and goes right to the end. This is a picture of what happens at the end. In between the way God fights, the way we fight, as I've already alluded with the gospel, with the word, with the proclamation that the God that we serve, the God that we proclaim, comes preaching first a gospel of peace. Then, for those who have not repented, then is the lightning, then is the judgment, then is, if you will, the end. But in the midst of that, in the middle of that, we have this opportunity to preach a gospel of reconciliation, restoration, and reunion as people living under God's protection because those whom God redeems, he also protects. We know this because God is faithful. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. He defeats us by dying for us. And in dying for us, he welcomes us into his kingdom. This is the theme this is picked up not only in the New Testament, but also by every hymn writer who has a heart for the gospel. Paul expresses this theme beautifully in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. 
He quotes the lyrics of an early hymn in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The idea that God fighting for his people to hold on to us firmly in the grip of his gracious, powerful protection. It's a theme that's also captured in, in the, the lyrics of Stuart Townend's classic song from the squalor of a borrowed stable. Writing about Jesus, singing about Jesus, Townend writes, through the kisses of a friend's betrayal, he was lifted on a cruel cross. He was punished for a world's transgressions. He was suffering to save the lost. He fights for breath. He fights for me, loosing sinners from the claims of hell. And with a shout, our souls are free. Death defeated by Emmanuel. So if we have a God who is willing to give his only begotten son to fight for us by dying on a cross, how much more so is he, in the words of Paul in Romans 8, how much more willing is he to give us all things through him? including the, the will, the endurance, the, the ability to persevere through all things for the sake of sharing the gospel and living it out. Which is why when you think about the, the, the way that our, our small groups have taken a, a turn with regard to wanting to deepen our knowledge of the gospel with one another, we want to instill in our members this assurance, this certainty, this joy, this sense of God's presence, this confidence and that in knowing the gospel, that in knowing the gospel, we know God. And in knowing God, we know His Son. And in knowing His Son, we know the power of the Spirit. So that we are able with confidence to fearlessly and boldly and courageously and compassionately not only know the gospel, but then share it as well. That theme of God fighting for us is, is one that should give us great hope. Because the King whom God installs in Zion... His holy hill is the defender, and he is the savior of his people. And the scene that is described here, as I said, it anticipates the end of time. It anticipates that marvelous scene in Revelation 19, where Jesus appears riding on a horse. He's got faithful, he is faithful and true, tattooed on his thigh. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's just this mighty, conquering king who now comes to vanquish his enemies who have refused his offer of grace and yet at the same time to vindicate his people who have so gloriously and so willingly and so triumphantly trusted in him throughout their entire lives. Here the Lord rise out at the head of his people to defeat their enemies. The vivid language that's used here is purposeful because it describes the totality of his victory. It's, it's similar to the language that when you go back and read 1 Samuel 17, when David kills Goliath, he throws, you know, he, he, he slings the stone and sinks in his forehead and he falls dead. It's not enough that the Goliath falls dead. Remember what David does? He hacks off his head. Why? Because that's the symbol of total defeat. Complete. Finished. The same kind of total, complete annihilation that takes place on the cross except instead of Christ's head being severed, his arms and feet are nailed to a cross and his side is pierced with a sword. 
And then he has the right, because of that death and resurrection, he has the right to come as his conquering king depicted here. God saves his people because he cannot save himself. He defends his people by defeating their enemies, first at the cross, then through the proclamation of the gospel. And again, I'm reminded of, of Townsend's song, the, the, the last stanza of his song from the squalor of a borrowed stable. He writes about Jesus. Now he's standing in the place of honor, crowned with glory on the highest throne, interceding for his own beloved till his father calls us to bring us home. Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds, hope of heaven or the fear of hell. But the bride will run to her lover's arms, giving glory to Emmanuel. <laughs> Where will you be on that day? Where do you want to be on that day? Oh, to be with the bride who runs into her lover's arms. That's the message of Zechariah. That's the message of the gospel. Have no fear of hell if in this life you have run into the arms of your beloved through trust in Christ. These people that have returned to the promised land, Zechariah is reminding them, God demanded something of your ancestors, He's demanding something of you as well. He has brought you to this place for a purpose, not simply to build houses and plant vineyards but to be light, to be salt, to be proclaimers. God has taken us from captivity to our sin. He has blessed us, and thank God He has blessed us. Some of us have been blessed beyond our imagining. And the purpose for that is that He would use what blessings He has lavished upon us, not simply spiritually, but materially, that we would use those to bless others. And let me commend you for doing that. Let me commend you. You are a generous and giving and caring membership. Continue to do that. Continue to humbly lay before God all that you have for his use in the building up of his kingdom, for the encouragement of one another. It is a blessing to us as pastors to hear and to see of your generosity not only in hospitality, but just in encouragement and spiritually praying for one another. It is a tremendous blessing. I appreciate people who respond to my travelers and just sort of say, you know, thank you, or, or you know, that was an encouraging word. That means more to me than I can, I can express. So continue to do that. God blesses his people. And he blesses his people so that we can bless others. And then the, just the last two verses, just moving quickly through that. God will bless his people uh, with his goodness and grace. Verses 16 and 17, we're told, and this is a, another favorite expression of the prophets, on that day, we're going to get into that, moving on into 12 to 14, on that day, uh, not only Zechariah, but other prophets, that day refers to that day <laughs> that's coming. On that day, the Lord, uh, their God, will save them as a flock of his people, like for like jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Uh, this is just, this is restoration language. He, he promises to, to bless his people, um, to care for the flock of his people. You know, we, we may look like sheep to the world, 
But in God's eyes, we are jewels, polished, <laughs> polished by tribulation, polished by trial, polished by grace to shine. Regardless how you feel this morning, regardless how you feel tomorrow when you get up and go to work, when the alarm sounds and you just, okay, it's another day. And it's Monday. You are a jewel in his crown. And he has made it possible for you to shine with the light of his glory. Zechariah 9 closes with this picture of renewal and vitalization with new wine and grain abounding. This is important because this promise that he makes, it has one foot in the Old Testament and has another foot in the New Testament has a foot in the Old Testament because way back in Deuteronomy, when Moses is speaking to that first generation that goes into the promised land, and he tells them that if you keep the covenant with God, this is what will happen. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be, be your basket and your kneading bowl. So they will have prosperity. So the message to this generation is, if you do what God has commanded, he is going to be with you as he was with your former generation. You're, you're not standing alone. You're connected to them. And then in the New Testament, um, Jesus says something very similar in John 10. John 10, Jesus refers to himself as, I am the good shepherd. And then he says that as a good shepherd, I have come that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. And then again in John 15, 4, Jesus tells the apostles, I am the vine. He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament promise, everything depended upon our obedience to the covenant. In the New Testament, everything depends on Jesus' obedience. And Jesus is forever faithful. Jesus is forever obedient. It's why the Apostle Peter can write in 2 Peter 1.3, speaking of God the Father, the blessings that come to us through Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That's Jesus who called us by His own glory and excellence. So where we are worried about whether we can be faithful Peter says, Jesus has got it covered. His faithfulness makes our faithfulness possible. And as long as Christ is faithful, we have sung about it. He is a sure and steady anchor. That anchor is not going to be moved. So our faithfulness is assured by His faithfulness. So then just go out and love your neighbor. Then just go out and, and do what God has commanded you to do. And be faithful in that. Because ultimately what you have here in Zechariah 9... And I, I, have, I have a conclusion and I'm moving to it. <laughs> this is a call to church unity. There's no place in God's kingdom for division and disunity. It's, it's how he accomplishes his plans for his church and the world through his church. We have to be a united community wherein God is at work within us so that we can go out and work in the world for his glory. To borrow the image from Zechariah 9, God is the archer. 
And he sends each and every one of us out as arrows into the world. He is the source of our unity. He is the bond of the Spirit. He is the uh, source of our faith in Christ. He is the object and the source of our worship. And all of that is bound, binding us together. And so Zechariah gives us this satellite view of what God is doing so that we can live out his grace at street level. And you get to the New Testament and you see that plan working out in street level. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, right? And the word became flesh and lived among us. Even now, he lives among us. And Revelation 7-9 shows us what this new community that Christ creates looks like. A vast and diverse multitude of men and women, all redeemed, all united by the blood of the covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A great multitude, John writes, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now that, that's a Palm Sunday to look forward to. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are privileged to be called your people, to be called jewels, and we bear a wonderful responsibility knowing that our, our Lord has himself already borne that responsibility. So let us be light and let us be salt in his name for his glory. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.